0: Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Folks, we are here with a guest whose bass lines you have likely heard your entire life on some of the most iconic songs in rock and blues history. Gerald Johnson's professional career began with The Sweet Inspirations as an opening act for Elvis on the Las Vegas Strip. A self-taught, left-handed player who utilizes a right-handed fender that he plays inverted, Johnson has been part of music history since the 1970s. He has played as a session player, as well as a concert performance sideman and vocalist for some of the greatest names in rock. He collaborated with Steve Miller on songs like The Joker and Abracadabra. He also played with the Pointer Sisters on one of my all-time favorite songs, Fire. He played with Dave Mason, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Stephen Stills on some of his solo albums, Les Dudic, Greg Allman, and Carl Wilson, among many others. In this episode, we hear how Gerald learned to play bass guitar, how he started playing professionally, and how finding sobriety almost 30 years ago changed his outlook on the music industry. We also have the pleasure of hearing some of Gerald's new music that he's currently writing and performing. So please enjoy this wide-ranging talk with bassist extraordinaire, Gerald Johnson. So you told me, um, and I wish I would have had the mic on at the time, but you told me about your bass and what we're looking at here, and I know the audience can't see it, so can you describe um, well, what this bass is?
1: It. this is a, well, first of all, I'm left-handed. Okay. And, and um, but I play it strong right-handed. So I learned on a right-handed bass when I was a kid. And I just turned it upside down.
0: Is that like Jimi Hendrix? Is uh, that what he did?
1: They, he's left-handed. He was left-handed. Yeah. And, and so am I. But he had a left-handed, his guitar was left-handed. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. His His E string was on the top, whereas my E string is on the bottom.
0: So you just, you're flat out upside down with I'm the,
1: flat out upside down. Okay. It. So it, I got a left-handed body with a right-handed neck. But anyway, Fender made this for me in 1981 for the Abracadabra tour. Um, and um, I had a, like, like t- I told you, I had a blue one that looks just like this. And yeah. then I got the green one. But um, it's a um, maple neck with an ash body. And it just plays like butter. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's... It, so I, what does that, I mean, how does that happen? You're, you, how do you have a company like Fender say, all right, Gerald, we're going to make you an instrument. Right. How does that happen?
1: Well, you know, you go through the artist relations department, especially it, it helps if they have an idea who you are. Yeah. Um, that, that's always a plus, but years ago, Steve Miller gave me one as a present. I had no idea what he was doing when he, when he gave it to me, but, um. When I was a kid, when I first worked in Hollywood, I he, we were working in the studio on one of his records, and I used to, I basically had a right-handed bass that I had turned upside down. So we're working, and there's four or five cases. I'd come in from the hotel the next day, four or five guitar cases laying around on the floor, and um, one of them was opened up, and it was a bass. And I I said, Steve, what is, what is that? He goes. Have a look at that thing, and I, I said, well, I can see it's a fender precision. And he, he said, do you notice anything different about it? And I said, well, wait a minute. And I said, that's a, that's a left-handed body, and it's got a right-handed neck on it. He goes, yeah. He goes, don't you play that way? And I, <laughs> you know, this whole time, I, 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 you know, I was so naive, and I was just, I had the blinders on that day. Yeah. You know? I had no idea he was giving me a bass as a present, yeah, and he was having me pick it up and look at it before I even knew it was mine oh,
0: you know? that's so cool it was it was a very cool. Thing. Do you still have that instrument?
1: I do not have that one anymore, yeah, yeah a lot a lot of them have come and gone, but so I've had a few made just like that one since then that was like nineteen seventy that was after I worked with the sweet inspirations we opened up for Elvis Presley in seventy almost seventy two so that was probably just later in seventy one that I had that bass made.
0: Yeah. yeah. One unique perk of interviewing artists is seeing them at their craft during the interview. And for that reason, my time with Gerald was even more amazing than most. He was kind enough to perform some of his own music during our talk.
1: Let's see. I came into the house Walked around Yes, I did. I said, hello, baby. How are you, girl? But on and on it goes. And I don't know what to do. I've got to make some changes. Got to try me something new It just ain't enough, baby No, no, no Feeling kind of lost I'm here to check on you Yes, I am This crazy heart of mine Needs to see it through Yes I do But on and on it goes And I don't know what to do I've got to make some changes Gotta try me something new it just ain't enough, baby. No, no, no. Oh, oh. it just ain't enough. No, no, no. Oh, oh.
0: thank I, you, sir. I love it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. So, is that something that you have recorded, or you're you're working toward worked, recording? I'm
1: working towards recording it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, is this is this uh, the first recording? <laughs> is <laughs> uh, that we've yeah. done here today th- of know, this?
1: Uh, this could be. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe the lot, they, they recorded some stuff at the job. Yeah. On 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 the twentieth.
0: Right yeah. at, at the Edmund Center
1: Center for the Arts down there.
0: So. How did you find the bass guitar as your instrument? Interesting.
1: Find it as my instrument. Hardly nobody has really put that question to me in that. And with that kind of wrapper around it there, Brian, you know, I was in boarding school and there was a kid from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, named Alfred Lucas. He had a friend of precision. He had been playing bass a few years and, um, And Fats Domino's son went to that same school that year in 66. He came down there in 66. I went there in 63. But anyway, Antoine came in 66, and we knew that Alfred Lucas had a bass. So Antoine said, Gerald, why don't you go ask Alfred if we can borrow his bass? And I went, ask him if we can. I said, nobody wants to. He goes, just ask him. You know, I'm sure he'll let us use it. Sure enough, he said, go look under my bunk. You know, we're in a boarding school in Lafayette, Louisiana. Look under my bunk and be sure to put it back in the case when you're done. He said, sure. So I, I picked it up, and in a very short period of time, it, I had some kind of bond with that instrument that I was not looking for. The, the way it felt up against my chest, the way the wood vibrated. You know, I was 16, 16. You know, I had not been exposed to any. I'd never even picked up an instrument that I can even remember and held it up close to me like that. And he, we were playing um, a Ramsey Lewis tune. It was, it's an old gospel cover, "Wading in the Water," D minor. I'll never forget it. And um, man, I had never experienced anything like that. And that's where it started. That was somebody else's bass, Alfred Lucas.
0: Yeah. You know, Is this yeah. your first experience with playing music, um, picking up a bass, or had you played, taking piano lessons? I, or- had,
1: I had piano, you, you know the drill, I had piano lessons as a kid and right. didn't particularly care for them because the the piano pointed out to the window, The uh, it, it faced the window and I could just see kids going by on their bikes. All I wanted to do was be out there, I don't want to be sitting <laughs> in there with a... Playing piano, I really didn't care about that, but yeah. but I did. My mother also played in church, yeah. but she worked at the Pentagon, so she was she was a working mom, and she found a girlfriend of hers to give me lessons, which I didn't particularly care for. Them. Yeah. But it was quite informative. They had that accordion-looking thing that slipped behind all the notes uh-huh. on the piano and told you what the notes were. And, it, you know, we could sure. play in C and D minor all day, you know. Yeah. The flat keys were tough, but, you know. The but major. Did,
0: did you find, I mean, I, I took piano lessons, too, and I was forced to take piano lessons oh, yeah. for for a long time. And I'm glad that I was forced to do it because I think it provided an excellent foundation for being able to just play whatever you want to play yeah. you know down the road did you find that same thing with the piano that it gave you a core understanding of core music, understanding know?
1: yes as far as th- theory wise i didn't really learn to read music or learn any of the the theory but the functional plan was very very exciting for me And we all played, my cousins, we all played heart and soul and we could switch sides and somebody'd play the dang, dang, dang up on the top and other people would play the chords. I mean, we had the best time. There was a piano in my dining room and you couldn't get to the kitchen without walking by that piano. So you'd stop and, you know, it was just, it was part of the family, you know. So yeah, um, I have a lot of great memories about me and piano, you know.
0: So your mom's working at the Pentagon and you're at boarding school. Um, Is this one of these boarding schools where there's all kinds of corporal punishment going on and it's kind of miserable?
1: Actually, it wasn't. It was a Catholic boarding school, and I expected it to to be exactly what you described. Right. It was a little bit of that... You know, discipline with the ruler on your hands a little bit, but the nuns. But yeah, yeah, the nuns, oh yeah, in the <laughs> class, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and usually, the ones that gave us the hardest time were the cutest nuns, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how that works, but but it wasn't a whole lot of that going on, um, and not to the certainly not to the point where it, it felt abusive or anything. That boarding school was actually a great platform for me. Hmm. I learned how to do my homework. I learned how to sing in choir and keep my note while somebody next to me sings their note. I mean, I learned a lot of things in those five years of being down in Lafayette, Louisiana. That I, you know, I didn't go down there with that knowledge. You know, right? I left there with it, though.
0: I, I just visited New Orleans um, for the first time at Mardi Gras this year. Oh boy! And uh, you know what a what a um, a shock uh, to. Be dropped into such a, a rich, um, colorful, wonderful culture. Oh my um, goodness, it's
1: unbelievable! Yeah, it, it
0: was just so lovely to be down there, and, yeah, and the and restaurants were amazing. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Shrimp po' boy. I have to always get a shrimp po' boy when I get to New Orleans. You know, I have to have one. Right. You know, but. Um, I got great memories, again, of the French Quarter. But this is back in the day before Katrina. Yeah. You know, way back in the day. 60s, you know.
0: So do you have a history of playing in the French Quarter?
1: Actually, you know, I don't. Just tooling around there with Antoine. Yeah. Because his dad knew a lot of those club owners. So they would let us in, even though we were underage. They'd even let us drink. They weren't supposed to, but they let (laughs) us do it anyway. And we'd hold it up under the bar, you know, cheesy little thing, you know. Right. But it was... It was fun. We're teenagers. Listen to jukeboxes; those great old rock rockola's. Mm-hmm. And um, I never forget hearing Aaron Neville. Tell it like it is. Uh,
0: you you heard him actually singing. It was on there? the jukebox. Oh, it was on the jukebox. Yeah, yeah. it was on the jukebox.
1: But well, over the years, I have met him, and I know him and his son. Oh yeah. Both Ivan. Oh yeah. a great piano player, great uh, organ player, and works with Bonnie Raitt right now.
0: So you're you're 16, and you pick up a, a borrowed bass guitar how do you make your way to the stage at that point
1: well from uh, that christmas I, I i told my mother um that that's what i wanted for christmas and she says well you know those you know those instruments cost a lot of money drill we'll see what we can do you know and her and my aunt put their meager but deserving funds together and got me a little a guitar that was about 86 dollars and the amplifier was It was a premier 12-inch speaker, Jensen. And I took it back to school, and I tell you what, I could hardly contain myself on the train ride back because I had this brand-new bass and this brand-new amplifier. I was just so excited, you know. Right. And and, an old guy saw me, you know, with my new stuff, and he said, you know, one of those guys, what you got there, young fellow? You know, one of those kind of cats, you know. And I told him, and he said, um, I said, it's funny you even asked. I said, the kids in the orchestra give me a hard time about, because I play left hand. I play it upside down. He says, ah, don't worry about that. Whatever way you learn is just as good as the next. Now, this old guy gave me permission to play a upside down. <laughs> I, I never saw him before that day, and I never saw him afterwards. Yeah. But I never forgot what he said. You know, it meant a lot to me at the time.
0: So. And you never went back. I mean, you never tried to no. relearn it.
1: No, no. No, they, they made me nervous because they were real nerdy, the orchestra, you know, and th- those kids, because they were just black and white. They, they didn't, they hadn't experimented, you right? Know? and I didn't know any better. So to me, it made perfect sense, you know. So what they ended up doing, Fender put the marking dots on the other side of the neck so that I could see them. See, they come on the side you're looking
0: at. Uh-huh. For the right-handed players. Yeah. yeah. And for
1: the left-handed players, they, they had to put them over here.
0: Oh, I see that. Oh, yeah. So when was your first time on stage playing playing bass?
1: Uh, it was a nineteen sixty, maybe seven, maybe it could be the before the year the year before I graduated. But we did a couple of jobs in school. They didn't let us do a lot, but they let us play
0: like school dances yeah, or something like that. It, play
1: around it at school, but, yeah. You know, but my first real job was just in a in a bar in downtown Washington, D.C. when I got out of school in 1968.
0: Was that where your boarding school was? No, or the no? boarding
1: school was Lafayette, Louisiana, oh, okay. which is 160 miles below New Orleans down yeah. there, way down there. Yeah.
0: yeah. So but how'd you make your way to D.C. then?
1: I, I lived in
0: D.C., oh, okay. but
1: my mother sent me away to boarding school.
0: I see. Yeah, okay, so you yeah. grew up in D.C. I then. grew up
1: in D.C. All right. She had a girlfriend that worked at the Pentagon, and I guess it must have bragged about her son's grades or something one time too many, and, you know, sitting in the cubicle across from him, and she probably thought, well, maybe I need to get Gerald down there because his grades are horrible, you know, <laughs> and they were. <laughs> and plus I was just dyslexic in the 50s, and nobody knew what that was in the 50s. They had no idea huh. what it was. So it, it, it caused me a lot of confusion and a lot of, I guess you could call it discomfort. Yeah. And I didn't know where it was coming from, but, um, it made studies in school really hard. But anyway, once I got to school and found a bass guitar and um, and learned how to read how to read the ruler, those were goals that are memorable to me. Breaking down a, a ruler.
0: What do you and, mean breaking down a ruler? You know, like
1: at quarters the sixteenths, and the 30 okay. seconds. All right. I I didn't when I was a teenager, it the guy that ran the class, taught us how to read the ruler. I had never learned how to read the ruler when I was a kid. Is that crazy? I just, it just hadn't come up yet. I mean, I'm, I might have been 14 or 15. Right. But it was a pivotal thing for me. For whatever reason.
0: Well, know. I think it's pivotal for music too to understand yeah. music. You know, um, you know, quarter notes and absolutely and absolutely four-four time and all that kind of stuff.
1: I credit that to Mr. Mel Bay himself, the the original music books of the from back in the day. Yeah, that was the name of the, the line. It was called Mel Bay.
0: Yeah, my mine was uh, Alfred's Alfred Self Teach. Did oh, you yeah. ever? I never heard of Alfred's. Yeah,
1: but there's a few of those those systems around that work really well to teach people like you and me, Brian, how to understand right. what it is that really goes on with all this stuff.
0: You N- know? Now I think it's YouTube.
1: Oh yeah. It's YouTube now.
0: At least yeah. for my kids, they yeah. learn everything with YouTube. Oh yeah. 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 So if, if you're in DC um, on the stage in a bar, um, what are you thinking at that point in terms of your, your future and your career goals? Uh, you're, it's your first time on stage in DC and you're holding a bass guitar playing with a band. What's going through your mind yeah. at that point?
1: Yeah. I, now originally I I thought I'd go to school. And like I mentioned earlier is I, I wanted to be a mechanic is I wanted to work on cars. I, I didn't really have a lot of it, music. Wasn't really on the, on the planet for me. I mean, it was there, but I, I just played a little, but it, the question you pose is—it's—it it, makes me think. Um, I thought maybe, maybe I could make a go of it, but I wasn't really sure. I mentioned it to my mother. I told her I was going to drop out of school and and start playing in a band. She goes, "Really? Are you sure?" And I and I I said to be honest, no. But I said I for some reason I think it makes sense to me. And she says, "Well, you." If that's what you think you want to do, then that's what you should do, you know?
0: Well, you know, I think most parents, uh, even today, um, but probably especially back in the 60s, if their kid tells them they're going to quit school <laughs> and, and play music, um, that that they're going to get some resistance. And it oh, sounds yeah. like you didn't get any resistance oh, no, from of, your mom.
1: I mean, I would call it none at all, Brian, yeah. really, none at all. You know, she really gave me permission to pursue that, and there was a kid in the neighborhood. His name was Rodney Brown. And before I got that club gig, I was telling you about Brian. He, he lived about eight blocks from me, and um, he played a big old fat Gibson. You know the ones like
0: the arch tops, the, the, the big, the,
1: the big thick ones. Yeah,
0: that's the arch top. Yeah, one. the
1: arch top ones, and um, he played like Wes Montgomery style, and all those really clever chords and substitutions and he was really great at it you know and he says Gerald he says, you know you you may not understand this but he said you have what they call talent and I said okay I said like talent like in the dictionary he said no no not like that he says it's funny he says you know where to go before it's time to go so you when get, you're playing. The, right.
0: the, so you I, have intuition.
1: That's what he was trying to do. Yeah. But when I, it was confusing to me what he shared with me at that time. He's since passed away and and, and it's not around, but we played in a band together. And we learned all these great girl from Ipanema and um, uh, uh, Moonlight in Vermont and all those standard kind of songs, really clever chord changes, great inversions, and um, Patti LaBelle saw us in a, they were playing the Howard Theater in downtown Washington, D.C. one day, and we were playing a little lounge gig. And they, she came up to us on the break and said, how'd you guys learn all those great songs and all those great changes? And um, I said, we rehearsed. She just laughed. She, she goes, I know you did, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what,
0: what, what was that like back then to, to run into just casually, you know, living legends? Like Patti LaBelle.
1: Oh my! I could, and and first of all, the when I thought of Patti LaBelle and the Bluebells, I thought of those songs that were popular on the radio. I never thought I was going to see her in a lounge connected to this hotel that we had a a, a gig in, and she, on the break she she made a point to come up to us, and because she really liked she loved the song selection, and and I. I was so engulfed in the job that I could hardly appreciate the presence of Patty LaBelle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I thought it was pretty amazing that she loved her so much, you know. Oh, that's awesome. It was really great. Her and one of the other girls that was in the band back in the day, like, you know, 1969 or something. It was a long time ago, you know.
0: So during this this time frame of the late 60s, and I, I was born in 71, so I missed the 60s. But oh, I, okay. have, I have an understanding of the musical era a little bit. Right. Um, what music were you listening to and and were inspired by in the late sixties?
1: Well, the one that would come to mind first would obviously be Motown because they were such a big machine back then. Yeah. And um, and James Jameson was the was the cat on bass guitar. And he played upright as well, but he played great bass lines and Carol K. Um, there was another guy, um, uh, Jerry Jammont. He was more East Coast. He did all the stuff like on Atlantic Records, and uh, with Eric Gale and these guys that did all the sessions, New York, and then and and Motown. But but it was um, James Jamerson. Man, he maybe want to play the bass. He really did, you know. And the bass player in Led Zeppelin, I I thought he was a great bass player. He was. He had great in, intuition. His the lines that he'd stitch together and, and make sound so musical and they flowed so well. And, you know, all I wanted to do was learn how to connect those chords yeah. and do what those guys were doing, you know.
0: Well, I, I know, I I watched a, a documentary on Led Zeppelin a while back on YouTube and it, they were kind of dissecting the songs and the parts of the songs. And what was remarkable was that, there would be, um, the drummer would play in a different time than the guitarist. And they, it would, right. was it John Bonham and yeah. Jimmy Page? Yeah. And they and they would merge. They would merge the uh, time signatures. The time signatures yeah. would merge at some point in oh, these yeah. songs. And yeah. same thing with the bass lines. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and the singing is just like a, just a masterpiece oh, that yeah. they would just, come up with.
1: And, and, and I wanted to figure out, how did they know to go from that E major? and that second chord being the sixth, and that was minor, and how do you connect those lines? And I thought, man, I have got, and it took a little while. And, you know, back in the day, Brian, you could slow the turntable down to 33, and you learn what they're playing in a slower speed in the wrong key and then speed it back (laughs) up, and then, you know, so it it, it was some work. But then after a while, instinct started to kick in for me. You know, and I was able to learn it a little easier, a little quicker. But yeah, those guys, it it burned a hole in my soul, man. It really made me want to play bass.
0: So, how did you end up on stage opening for Elvis?
1: Well, the the girls that I worked for, I got a job with the Sweet Inspirations. The drummer Jerome Monroe, he's in that picture over there, that with me and Elvis. He's the one on the right. He lived in Washington D.C. and and um, we called him Stump. He's he's the one on the right. Yeah, okay. he used okay. to come to the Coco Club, the club gig that I had. He said, "Man, you got to get it. You need a road gig, Drill. You need to get out of town. You got you got all these skills, and you don't even know what you're doing, you know." And I said, "Well, yeah. Uh, well, how do you how do you get how do you get a road gig?" He said, "Just start telling everybody. You know, you ready to go on the road? You know." He was just he was just you know very enthusiastic about it all, you know. And ironically enough, the Sweet Inspirations, their bass player that they had, had found another job that was that paid a little more dough. So he took the other job, and the spot was open. So he told the band leader, Gregory Gaskins, who was the guy on the left side of Elvis, that's Gregory, okay. about me, and... And I'm on the bottom with those new sunglasses that I found on down off on the strip down in Las Vegas. I was really <laughs> happy because I figured I looked real good in them sunglasses. So I had to have those. Well, you <laughs> did. <Matt. laughs> you looked great. I thought I was pretty cool, you know. But anyway, he, he told Gregory about me and he they brought the Sweet Inspirations to a job I did, a club gig I did. And. They're sitting there, you know, and they're kind. Of, they look like professional entertainers, you know. And I'm thinking, but they're laughing.
0: When they're I, la- what did you say? They were laughing. Oh, they're laughing. Okay. And,
1: you know, and I thought they were laughing at me, and th- they loved me. But I, I sort of, it made me a little uncomfortable. I wasn't nervous or anything, but I thought, I wonder why they laughed at me. I mean, wh- what am I? They just. Thought the way I played, my style was amazing, and they, they liked it a lot. And of course, they, they gave me a job. Yeah. And one of their first road gigs coming up was to go to Las Vegas and open up for Elvis Presley, which I didn't know was part of the deal, but.
0: <laughs> Did, uh, were you an Elvis fan at that time?
1: I knew a couple of his, he had a couple of pieces of music that I really liked. Return to Sender was one of my favorite ones. Yeah. Address unknown. Never forget that one. And then he had another couple of pieces, if I'm not mistaken, one of them, uh, maybe even a couple of them, Larry Gatlin from the Gatlin Brothers had written. But I thought Elvis was a fine singer. But as far as an entertainer, I really didn't know much about him. You know, he was popular, no question about it, you know. but um,
0: Well, he doesn't seem like a, a musician's um, entertainer. He seems more of a, a good... You know, he, like women would fall over fall over themselves well, yeah, for him in shows. But what's
1: funny about him is that he was one of those guys that could sing all those tunes. He learned all those Jimmy Reed songs. He covered every he could cover anybody's stuff, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, I just did a gig over in, in Miranda's Denmark, and there's, those people over there are not sure that Elvis has passed away. They think he's still around somewhere. <laughs> but anyway, they, they fly us all over there, and, and me and that drummer Stump uh, go and back up a guy, and, and the guy covers a bunch of Elvis Presley songs and sings a song that El, well, Elvis also sang... Uh, Neil Diamond, was it Sweet Caroline? Yeah. He covered that, and he covered a bunch of other people's stuff. But he knew how to cover your tunes,
0: man. Yeah.
1: And so we backed up uh, uh, um, a a guy named Bobo Morano that was, he covered all these great songs that Elvis did. And Stump and I, they flew us to Denmark for this big Elvis Presley thing they do every, they've called me again already this year, they want me to come again. Really? Yeah. They fly you out there. Yeah, they fly you out there. They put you up. They throw a couple chips your way and feed you and take <laughs> care of you. And you sign a whole lot of autographs and, you know, shake a lot of hands and kiss a lot of babies. And it's it's quite the, you know, I mean, I don't think they know that Elvis is not here, Brian. I, <laughs> and then you get on stage and they want you to tell an Elvis Presley story, something of, that you remember that was dear to your heart at the time. and
0: yeah. It
1: it was quite, it was quite the, I was pretty amazed. I mean, in a tent of like four or 500 people, they feed them, they sell them these, you know, you buy tickets to the show. And then there's a couple of acts and I was one of the acts. James Burton came over. He was the guitar player in Elvis's band for a long time, you know, so.
0: So how, how did you make your way into the Steve Miller band?
1: Uh, We used to, Elvis played when he played everywhere, but all those stadiums that were like Mile High Stadium in Denver and, you know, the Forum in L.A. and all those basketball stadiums back in the early 70s were concert venues, and we flew everywhere. And we also did Tahoe. We did the Sahara in Tahoe. And um, Steve Miller, Ross Valerie, who ended up being the bass player in Journey, who used to be in the Steve Miller band, and a guy named Herbie Herbert, who managed Journey... And um, sort of launched their career back in the early '70s in San Francisco, had all gone to the Sahara to see Elvis, and had great tickets like third row back. And we were there. I'm the I was in the opening act. Yeah. Sweet Inspirations, and then a comedian named um, Jackie Kahane. He'd come out and do twenty minutes. Then they'd clear him away, and then Elvis would come out with his band and the Sweet Inspirations. And the um, Stamps Quartet. They could have been even a quintet. but So he had 10 background singers, Kathy Westmoreland, she sang the really high part, the Sweet Inspirations, and the Stamps Quartet, all over on the side of the stage, plus the rhythm section, plus some horns, When you saw Elvis, that's what you saw in Las Vegas. Yeah, I mean, it was quite the show. That's
0: a big presence. Yeah, Yeah.
1: and then so Miller is at the gig. Steve Miller's at the gig to see Elvis. Now, the way the story goes, I was playing the slot machine, and he came up and said, I really loved your work. I thought you were great. Apparently, I said, thank you very much. I, I don't remember the event, but six months later, one of the sweet inspirations called me and said that somebody is calling you from California named Steve Miller that wants you to come and play on a record. And I'm thinking, Steve Miller? Was that like Mitch Miller's kid? or I, 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 I'd, I'd never heard of Steve Miller. <laughs> I, I didn't know who he was. you know. And then my mother, I'd moved to downtown Washington, D.C. at that point, and my mother had called, and she said some guy named Tom Barnes. Says he works for Steve Miller. Said that Mr. Miller wants to talk to you. And I'm thinking, really? And so I called this friend of mine in the neighborhood. I told him, I said, this, I don't know if this is even a real story or it, what it is, but somebody from California named Steve Miller is trying to, to uh, get a hold of me and have me come and play on a record. And he goes, you never heard of Steve Miller? And I go, No. He said, Steve Miller Blues Band. They got a couple of records out. They do. He does blues. And I went over his house, and I listened to the... I thought, oh, my goodness, I could play that standing on my head, you know? <laughs> so in the, that evening, this Tom Barnes calls, said, Mr. Miller's going to call you in 20 minutes. He's coming to the office. He lives over the Golden State Bridge. When he gets here, he'll call you. And I thought, okay. So, of course, he calls, tells me the story about... Seeing me play the slot machine, how much you love my work. I saw you open up your Elvis, blah, blah, blah. I got your number from Myrna Smith, one of the sweet inspirations. I called Atlantic Records. He told this whole deal, how he put it all together. And um, he says, I want to fly you to Hollywood, and I got this new record I'm playing on, and I want you to play on the record. He says, I'll set you up. I'll take care of you. Everything will be fine, you know. And that's that's basically how I met I met him on the phone, and then he... I flew me to Hollywood. I stayed at the Chateau Mamont, that hotel. Bellucci stayed there. A lot a lot of people stayed there. Yeah. And um, that's where the band was set up to stay. But we were cutting it. The Capitol Records Tower over there were uh, the Beatles cut and, and um, um, Nat King Cole and just all kinds of people used to use it. It was right at Hollywood and Vine there. The main tower that's in all the movies, you see it all the time, you know. Yeah. And that's where the, the sessions were, you know. And uh, he flew me to Hollywood to play on a
0: record. So was this your first time in Hollywood? Yes, sir. It was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and sent a limo to pick me up at the airport and took me to the hotel. And, I mean, it was really something else. I just was not prepared for that at all, you know.
0: But was this kind of a turning point for you professionally?
1: It, it was. And, and a couple of the sweet inspirations weren't particularly comfortable with it. They thought I was dropping them a bit in the lurch. And and the one that, that she seemed to be a little more open-minded is the main one. She used to be Gregory's girlfriend. Myrna Smith was her name. And she said, listen, Gerald, he said, if somebody's giving you an opportunity that's a legitimate opportunity, she says, take it. We'll get another bass player. Don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty, you know. It was really great that she did that, you know.
0: So when Steve Miller offers you a seat, you know, a seat in the band or a position in the band, um, does that mean you are a studio musician, a touring musician, um, both? Are you you're a bass player for all purposes for the Steve Miller Band?
1: I w- I became bass player for all purposes for Steve Miller Band in 1972. Yeah, Journey for Meaton album was the one. That we did before the Joker album, okay. which was his first really big record. Yeah. You know, it it you know that was the first time I uh, had played on it. It was a gold record. It was a platinum record. It was on the charts with a bullet. I mean, it just got really, really big in Hollywood.
0: Would Would you be so kind as to play the intro to the Joker um, on your bass? Is that?
1: Let's see. Do I still know how to play that bass line? <laughs> the first go record I ever played on.
0: <laughs> nice. Yeah, I just couldn't resist. <laughs> I, I know. Yeah. That'd be just such an iconic song.
1: It, it it really is. and And he was going through a bit of a... Though him and the record company were having a bit of a pissing contest. I think they're, you know, business wise. They couldn't get cross your T's and dot your I's and whatever. And he decided to go to Europe and without the support of the label and without a lot of stuff. And and we go to Europe and in about ten days or two weeks, every time you got in any car, every time you went anywhere that there, there was a radio. It, hear that bass line, here's that song. Yeah. You know, it's it's like in the States it was like number fifteen with a bullet. And then it's number nine with a bullet. It's number five with and then of course it's number one. And it's a platinum record, you know. Yeah. Uh it it was it was an amazing time.
0: Well I mean it's it's a song that, you know, I it, it's just sort of emblazoned in my my oh, mind, yeah. my musical psyche. Is, mind you, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know you hear it in in grocery stores and shopping malls oh, and radios. My goodness, it's please. Still Elevators everywhere. Elevators everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Do you even? I mean, when you hear it in that setting outside your home, um, you know, in a crowd, do, do, does it phase you anymore, or is it still kind of remarkable?
1: Oh no, it's still quite remarkable. I'm still. I'm quiet about it. My girlfriend, she's not as quiet about it as I am. <laughs> and then she's... So now what she does is she nudges me and she taps me. You know, she has to let me know it's on the... It's in the system in the store or wherever we're at, you know.
0: Yeah. It's, you know. So at the time when that was being recorded, um, were you part of the creative process to come up with the the part? Yeah. Yeah. I
1: was at the time, yeah.
0: And so when that when that's happening... Um, are you thinking about things like musical rights and um, royalties and things like that at, at that time? I, at that time, I had
1: no. I didn't even care about any of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would have done me better had I been. But um, he, Miller was always kind to me anyway. Yeah. Um, unlike some artists, you know. But I'm. I'm. I'm not going to open up that can of worms. But anyway. Um, Yes, I would have loved to have been more knowledgeable about music business. I was, what I was, where I hung my hat, Brian, was playing. I I loved playing. I still do. Just like I did in boarding school with Fats Domino's son. I love to play just as much now as I did then. And so I never really, I never was a good businessman. Never was really that, you know, but I... The creative process, I have a lot of regard for because it was a gift. It was not, you know, I can hear stuff that I don't know how I can hear it, but I can hear it Yeah, kind of thing, you know, so.
0: Well, as you, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here with this question, but as you look back on your career, do you think that um, not being tuned into the business aspects of it um, hurt you? or kept you focused on what was important, um, the creative process?
1: Well, I was naturally drawn to the creative process. I think it would have been helpful um, business-wise had I been smarter about um, the business aspects of it. Right. Um, Do I have any regrets there? A few. Not enough to make me lose any sleep. Um, because I am still very much in love with the bass guitar. I still love to write bass lines. That was the my first attraction with this instrument that wasn't even mine. It belonged to Alfred Lucas. But it gave me... It was an extension. It could say things for me that I could could not verbalize. And I still respect and appreciate the freedom of being able to do that. Just to be able to pick it up and play just ain't enough for you on your podcast. Yeah. You know, um it that was a gift that I was not I had no idea that it was inside of me. And um and I'm you can call me fortunate or grateful or blessed or whatever, but um
0: Yeah. Well, I wish everyone could be that fortunate to have something that they can take with them, you know, wherever they are in the world. Yeah. You know, they have that and then they can create something.
1: Well, it, it when I was a kid, it was something that I could do. And and regardless of the dyslexia and the discomfort that I had in early teenagers, teenage years and some of the things that were going on in my life as a kid growing up, once I got to, like I told you, when I got to boarding school and I learned to sing in the choir and I learned to play bass guitar and the other thing is I learned how to do my homework. They gave it. We had study hall, and I used to have, I used to have terrible study habits. Coming up until I got to the eighth grade, um, I I couldn't get my homework done. Brian couldn't get it done, you know. So um,
0: do you, do you think that your dyslexia? Um, which I think forces kids to learn differently, you know, they kind of have to, they have to work the way around, come at it from a different angle. I think
1: you absolutely do have to work your way at a different, without a roadmap,
0: you know. But do you, do you think there's a connection between your dyslexia and your, the the different way that you learn the base? I mean, you learned it upside down.
1: Absolutely. I absolutely think they all correlate. I, I believe that. Yeah. Now, Years ago, if you had asked me, I I probably wouldn't have had an answer for you. But I, I over the years, after looking back now, I think it it had its own path that it chiseled out for me. You
0: know. Yeah. So how many years did you play with Steve Miller? You said seventy two was when you were brought on for the as a touring musician and and studio. How long did that last?
1: Well, we did two albums. We did one called Journey from Eden and we did the Joker album and we did tours um we did i did a few tours in 72 73ish around in there maybe even some early 74 we went to Europe and did a bunch of a bunch of dates in Europe just like a whole bunch of them and um i um had played uh all through Germany Italy Spain uh just touring in um and then Miller got sick uh, over there. He got um, hepatitis.
0: Oh goodness!
1: You know, and like we're talking really, really sick.
0: Yeah, and It's um, deadly. Yeah, it was back it, then. It was back anyway. then. It really was.
1: Yeah, and so the way it worked out was, after that last stent, I didn't work with Miller for quite a few years. Um, until way later. I mean, I, I did a whole bunch of other jobs after that. I, I played in Boss Gag's band. I, then I went to Dave Mason. And, you know, I just, it, it, my career kept moving. But after he got, I mean, I got my my road fee back like this. You know, I was afraid I was going to catch what he had. I mean, he, he got sick in England,
0: like really. yeah. They had to
1: fly him home and, you know.
0: And nobody knew a lot about it back then well, either, right? N-
1: he had yellow and you just, he just got real sick.
0: Yeah. You know, so, so, so Dave Mason, um, and then what about Crosby stills Nash and, and Crosby that, stills Nash and young? And
1: that came, and that came later too. But the first job I had after, after, um, Dave was, um, Bob Skaggs after Steve was Bob Skaggs. Okay. And, and, and that was 74. And, um, And then I got, uh, Dave Mason's manager was at the job and, um, he, I made friends with him and he said, man, if, if Dave Mason ever heard you, he said, boy, he, you know, he, he would really, he would really love your work. And, um, and as it worked out, um, Jason Cooper was his name, was right. You know, Dave Mason was at a show that I did somewhere and he, saw me and liked me, and they offered me a job. So in 1975, I started working for for Dave, and this was after Boz. I did Boz Gags for a while. He did some Canadian dates like Calgary and Edmonton and Vancouver, and they were black tie dates, and it was Boz Gags and Sarita Wright, who was—I think she was married to Stevie Wonder back then. Um, But anyway, we— I did Boz to Dave, and I did Dave four years, from '75 to '79. So I did yeah. all of Dave's records and his tours from '75 to '79, which was about like, oh boy, it could be, it could be five or six albums, you know. Wow. And, yeah. And also during that time, I played on um, A Romeo and Juliet. The oh, the Pointer Sisters, yeah, which was really the fire, fire, yeah, yeah which was really a Bruce Springsteen tune. The, the Pointer Sisters didn't write that. That was a Bruce Springsteen tune, <laughs> and but they got the hit on it, yeah. You know, so I played bass on that with a, a, a somebody from a, a, one of the guys from Toto and one of the guys from a, a Elton John's band. I can't remember what that keyboard player's name, but um, anyway, I did a couple of. Different other jobs during that Dave Mason stint too in Hollywood too.
0: So how so how does this happen? Is it just that you your name is out there as a bass player that um, you know is a hard worker and is obviously very talented, and so you just have a reputation, and so the Pointer Sisters need a bass player for Fire, right? And and they there are people call call you directly and say hey can you no, show they,
1: up actually it was a, produ- a producer thing you know okay the producer knew somebody that knew about us and they needed a drummer and a and and a bass player that they were hopefully they were hoping to find a drum and a bass player to work together yeah and we were in the studio working on a dave mason record and so the the drum he since passed away too his name was rick jagger He played on fire. He played drums. I played bass. Danny Kuchmeyer was a guitar player that worked in Hollywood. David Page is a keyboard player that worked with Toto. And it was just a whole collection of studio musicians that played on that track. But the producer put those those pieces together, whatever calls he made to connect us together. Because I didn't really know um, that producer... I, can, I can't tell you his name. I, I know his name. He just did a really great p- play a few years ago. Richard Perry. Richard Perry, was okay. produced. And he produced a lot of things in Hollywood. And he's done plays and he does all. Anyway, he put that together for the session for the Pointer Sisters. He worked with them and he needed a band. So he put together sort of like an all-star band to come out and play.
0: So for... for- the, the listeners who don't know the history of this song, who wrote it and who recorded it and who made it a hit? Which one? A fire.
1: Fire was written by Bruce Springsteen. Okay. But the Pointer Sisters, produced by Richard Perry, they were the ones that got the hit on it. But Bruce did it. I heard it on something live somewhere. Um, actually, it was after I'd played on it. Quite a few years after I play it. And then I realized, oh, that's a Bruce Springsteen tune. That's not a Point of song. But um, yeah, anyway.
0: That's- I mean, that's just, that song, I, I can't even imagine being in the studio recording that song and then later on, you know, looking back on it and realizing how historic oh, yeah. that moment was. Yeah. Did you know at the time? No, how-
1: I, I did. I didn't. What was it?
0: Driving in your car, right? <laughs> okay, I just ruined the podcast. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> that was good. You're right on pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, oh I, man! Yeah, that's um. That was a. Uh, it was just one of those, you know. And it, it, it's weird, Brian. Right then, I was, you know, kind of busy. And and just uh, doing a lot, and it, it, the job kind of came in. I mean, we probably did that the second. I think we only did two takes of it, and we got it. They kept the second take of it, and it was done. You know, and um, and it was kind of a busy time in in my life, if you will. You know, because I lived in, I lived in Hollywood out there for, thirty five years maybe, something like that. So. I moved out there in 1976, the year after I got with Dave Mason. And I moved up here, I don't know, maybe maybe 10 or 12 years ago. So
0: so if you're in Hollywood for 30-some years, how much of that time is doing studio work versus and touring?
1: I did a bunch of studio work and a bunch of touring because I did, like I said, from 75 to 79, I did all Dave Mason stuff. Then I met Stephen Stills and started Doing tracks for him and gigs
0: for him. For his solo stuff.
1: For his solo stuff, you know. And then later on, um, and then after that, then Miller called me. I I was out with Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys. I did an album for Carl Wilson because of Myrna from the Sweet Inspirations. She co-wrote some songs with Carl and she says, well, Carl needs a band. Gerald, do you, do you have, I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm playing with some guys. right." So anyway, we went to the Beach Boys rehearsal um, warehouse over in um, Santa Monica, and um, Carl loved us. So we went on the road with Carl Wilson and opened up about three or four dozen Doobie Brothers shows just through the United States. We didn't go out of the country. And um, and did a bunch, and then American Bandstand. I I see it's on some, it's on YouTube somewhere. I Carl introducing us, and you know calls me the inimitable Gerald Johnson. Oh, nice, <laughs> <laughs> great word. Oh yeah, I, it's a great word.
0: I never use it. It sounds yeah. good when they're talking about me though. <laughs> so was Brian around at the time? Brian Wilson? No, no he, he came.
1: He came by the rehearsals, and I met Brian. And when he came here. I reminded him, I saw him last year when he played here, and I reminded him, I said, do you, he said, oh, no, I remember you, you know, he, it was really nice, because Billy Henchy was playing keyboards with him, and Billy Henchy was Carl's brother-in-law, and they did, we did a bunch of gigs on the road together, cut it in Caribou, Caribou Ranch, the studio up in, up in Nederland, uh, Colorado, used to be, uh, uh, Jim Gershio, he was, uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears cut there, and. All kinds of people cut there, and it was called um, Caribou Ranch.
0: So it's know? one of those getaway studios yes, where you don't want any distractions. E- exactly. Yeah.
1: You could. They had lodges. You stayed there. You made the records. They fed you. They had a kitchen. They, it, it, there was even. A, I remember there was a ghost town on the property, and they had snowmobiles, and you could ride snowmobiles and jump and get a little nutty. You know, yeah. it was fun. You know,
0: and kind of keep you out of trouble. At keep the same you out time. of
1: trouble at the same time. That's where Carl did his record at. Yeah. And I played on a bunch of that one, too.
0: So the Crosby, Stills, was it was it Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young first, and then Neil Young left, and it, and it was just Crosby, Stills, Nash? I, or I only worked with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Oh, OK. I never did work with them, all four of them. I see. So the Crosby, Stills, Nash time frame, was that late 70s?
1: No, that was uh, earlier. Well, abracadabra, abracadabra, 82 was Abracadabra. Okay. So after, I didn't I didn't even do Crosby Stills in Nashville till 92. Oh. But I played with Steven in the 80s. Okay. You know.
0: In his solo stuff.
1: Yeah, solo stuff. And then we did a bunch of those outdoor jobs where it's like Central Park or it's like Belmont Raceway and, you know, just um, he he put together a band, get a bus, and hit the road. And just do outdoor festivals, which were great, you know, which was great. Well, the the biggest one I ever did was a Cal Jam with Dave Mason, 77, which was the 250,000 people outdoors. Oh, my goodness. Ten bands, you know, all day music started at nine o'clock in the morning.
0: He did a lot of touring, didn't he?
1: Oh, yeah. Dave. We went everywhere. We went everywhere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. did, before I forget, you know um, David Crosby. There's a new documentary out on him, and it's playing at the Seattle International Film Festival next weekend.
1: Oh, okay. Um,
0: so if you're interested in seeing the documentary, oh, I'm yeah. going to go see it next weekend. But nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, but did you did you form any friendships with um, with Crosby Stills? Oh and yeah, Ash? I did in-
1: with Stephen and Dave. When David played here, I went to see him at the Paramount when he played here. And when Crosby, Stills, and Nash played here, I went and hung out with them when they played here. When Graham Nash played at uh, Edmund Center for the Arts, where I played, I went down and hung out with him when he played. Brian Wilson, whenever they come around, I go and hang out with them. You know. So,
0: yeah. So. And how does that how does that happen? Because I don't I don't have a lot of celebrity friends. I don't know how you go about doing that do you do you just have their cell number and just text them and say well, a hey I come just you?
1: Call, a lot of times i can just call them or email yeah you know but um and then whenever steve miller's around i go and hang out with him sometimes he has me sit in and play like he did here this was well that was another job i think we did um maybe that was in new york somewhere but we used to do a bunch of um he's he plays Saint Michelle when he comes out oh. and and sometimes I sit in with him when he when he he's had me sit in with him, yeah, yeah I'd bring my bass and and go and play you know
0: did you ever play any of the gorge concerts um over at the Gorge with Steve I, miller i
1: did I, I you know I don't know if I did the Gorge with Steve Miller, but I think I did the Gorge with crosby stills and Nash oh okay you know i i I remember playing the Gorge,
0: um, yeah the, the reason I asked yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful venue, but yeah. I I've seen a lot of shows at the Gorge. and oh, I've just, I bet you have. Maybe I've seen you.
1: You could have. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So, the um, the the gigs that you were doing in Hollywood or um, out of Hollywood, where you were touring and you were in the studio. Were you always able to make a living just playing music, or did you did you ever have to? Um, have side jobs to kind of get you through tough times financially.
1: Well, I mean, if if, if I was smarter, I probably would have had side jobs to get me to, <laughs> <laughs> to, <laughs> to, you know. But but no, a lot of times I I really didn't. But I for a large part of my career, not too bad, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, you know, could have managed things a little different. You know, could have put a little something something in the kitty for later. Um, but you know, that ship's already sailed, Brian. <laughs> and whining about spilled milk is never going to work out for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I mean, I have survived. In spite of my poor choices and bad behavior, yeah. I survived. And then, like I told you, the other thing I had to do, which is a lot, it's a little away from what, what it is we're talking about here, is I had to change some of my habits so I could continue to do this yeah you know and um
0: well you you mentioned off mike that you've been so, you've been sober for 29 years it'll
1: be 29 in in august yeah
0: so that would have been what late 80s when uh, you're 1990,
1: 1990 August in 1990 okay in 92 sure. i got i started working with csn
0: oh okay yeah so what was the uh i'm not going to ask you to get too personal here but what was the the inciting event or kind of the um, the life circumstance that made you say you know what I need to I need to get sober so I can continue playing music
1: and uh, it was it was a compilation of a lot of different experiences and emotions that sort of funneled down to one particular um, time frame which was, the late '80s for me. I had been. I also just before that, what was a his? What was his name? He um, he co-wrote "If" with David Gates. His name was um, Rob Royer, and I, I did a project with him. And um, and he had, he had originally he knew about me, and had asked me to come out and do this project that he was putting together. Um, and he said, Gerald, he said, you know, but I'm I'm a little concerned because he, he says, I I I I don't want to be indelicate and disrespect you in any way, but he says, I'm a little concerned about some of the stories and some of the things that I've heard, you know. And, and <laughs> he was just being really nice about saying, I hear you drink too much. He didn't say that. Right. You know? But, you know, and... Um, and so I, and I was kind of offended, you know, by, you know, and so I, I told him, you know, thanks for thinking of me, but I, I'm not interested in your project. And, um, but he had, we had mutual friends that worked for this guy in Hollywood and, um, and I reconsidered like a month or so later because I really needed to work. And it. Uh, why would I turn down work, you know? Um, but um, it was about take of the job and no drink, mm-hmm. you know? So I took the job. And then after I got done with the job, I went right back. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't last much longer after that. And then shortly after that, I got sober. But to answer your question, that's that's when things started to narrow. The road got narrow.
0: D- did you find that um, you were able to play better? Um, was it more challenging to play sober at first? Well,
1: at first it, 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 it was, challenge was not, that, that word don't even cover it. It was really difficult because it was something that hadn't been done in about 27 years. So, but it didn't take long to realize that it even felt better there was a level of clarity that had been forgotten about, you know, that um, I've gotten really used to.
0: Yeah. And uh, and probably appreciate. Oh, now.
1: my goodness. But, I mean, but the, the period of time that you're talking about, yes, it was really difficult to, like, get back on the pony, if you will. And, you know, but um, I'm grateful and glad I did.
0: I, I just, I find it amazing that you you start, you know, you pick up the base at 16, you know, you're, you're on a stage shortly after that playing in bars and there's really, it sounds like no break where you, you have to basically get a day job, you know, because you're, you're doing it. I mean, you're making money. You may not be, um, you know, a multimillionaire, um, You know, every album is a platinum album or whatever, but you're, you're successful. And I'm wondering if there was ever any doubt in your mind about whether you would be able to continue doing what you're doing. And you're about to turn 70, um, all the way into your, your sixties and seventies.
1: Well, over the years, occasionally it has come up, um, in my head, uh, in my heart, not so much. But in my head, um, it has come up. But um, I'd rather do this because I know how to do this. (laughs) I'm comfortable with this. I can just reach over and pick it up and play something, and chances are you and Sarah will like it, you know. Um, It's where my training, It's, it's the way... It's such a part of me that I I, I, I can—sometimes it's difficult for me to put it into words. It's such a large part of my life, you know. And most of it was come was writing bass lines for a lot of other people, you know, just all kinds of people over the years, you know. Whether it be Steve Miller or Boz Gags or Dave Mason or the Pointer Sisters or— and a little Greg Almond splashed in there, and just all kinds of stuff I've been able to do over the years, and then still try to chisel out a piece or two for myself, and um, co-write some other things with a few people over. I mean, it just kind of it just kind of keeps going.
0: It, if um, if you were going to give advice to a 16 year old who's picking up a bass guitar or any instrument, you know, for the first time, and they they think that maybe this is for them, that they want to be a musician and they want to do it for their career. What, what kind of advice would you give them today in today's music industry?
1: Well, you know, I don't know a whole lot about this industry, the way it is now. I mean, I know a lot of things obviously have not changed and they never will, you know, probably not probably in my lifetime or your lifetime, but you know, it's interesting. I, I, like my grandkids, I discourage them. I tried to discourage them from playing music because I know what kind of work it takes. And I know what kind of commitment it it, it takes. My daughter sings and my grandson plays. And, um, and, and sometimes people have asked me that before. You know, what kind of advice would you give somebody else coming up that, you know, that is... Um, you know, inspiring to be a an entertainer or or learn how to play an instrument. And and sometimes I the there's so much you can say and then there's a few things that make the most sense. And what I realized for me, Brian, is that I think it is important to learn how to play with yourself. Like by yourself. And no, and nothing, and play in time, you know, and 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 um, in other words, to have a clock inside. You see my foots pattern. Mm-hmm. And learn how to do some clock in your head. Learn how to play. Keep time yourself. And the way you do that is you get a metronome and you play to a metronome. Not something that simple. That's what I would say. Nice. Is learn how to get some time.
0: So, in terms of the um, commitment part of it, uh, uh, you know,
1: boy, that's a tough one. You 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 know enough about that, Brian yourself. Yeah. You know, it's for me. It was a. I I think I was supposed to be a a minstrel. I was supposed to entertain people. Now I I didn't know that in boarding school in 1966 when. Antoine Domino came to that school. I did not know that that was going to happen. When Alfred Lucas let me play that Sunburst Fender Precision of his, that he I got from him, and he I borrowed it from him. And then my my mother and my aunt bought me a. I I couldn't have told you. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You know. Yeah. You just can't. So, um, boy, the commitment. It's a, I can, I can, I'm having a hard time putting that, putting those words together right now, to be honest with you. Um, it's just been such a way of life for me, you know, some bitter, some sweet,
0: you know? Well, my observation and meeting you for the first time and hearing your story for the first time is that, um, you know, the word that comes to mind is immersion. Um, it, you seem to have immersed yourself in music and you did it by hanging out with musicians, you know, playing for musicians, writing your own music, and really never looking back or questioning. And it sounds like your, your brain questions sometimes whether this was the right track, but your heart was always music. Is that a fair um, summary of...
1: I think that's a fair summary. You said it better than I could.
0: Um, now, in terms of influences... Did you? I'm just curious it, because one of my um, heroes was Getty Lee from Rush. I don't know if you've ever um, listened to any. Oh yeah, uh, I Getty know some Lee. of their stuff. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: With, uh, One of your influences. Yeah, yeah. well, yeah. I mean,
0: just he's just such an amazing. He played the the guitar. I mean, played the bass like almost like a guitar. I mean, he was just such. He was such a. Um, a maestro. Oh, okay. Um, and then Bootsy Collins with Bootsy the,
1: Collins, rubber band band, yeah. Yeah. Well, Bootsy played on a bunch of James Brown stuff too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, he, you know,
1: he's been around,
0: man. So, but do you, what were, you, who were your influences? Aside uh, from in, James
1: Jameson? Well, you can't, you can't go any further without mentioning Willie Weeks, yeah. you know, because uh-huh. he played with Donny Hathaway back in the day and- and I, he, Willie just called me a couple of weeks ago. He's out with Boz Skaggs. Oh. And I told him that, um, I said, you know, I used to play with Boz. Be sure to tell Boz I said hi. <laughs> so I think I'm going to go down and see Willie and Boz whenever they play down here in Portland or somewhere. They're coming here in a couple of months. I'm going to go hang out with them.
0: So how, how do you spend your time these days musically?
1: Well, I got um, well, I got a new girlfriend, which I who I love to death. But um, I... I have a project that I've been working on. Um, there's a one, a, the band I did with the, um, at the Edmund Center for the Arts, they're called Miss Sydney and the Downtown Saints. And um, we have covered a bunch of different people's material. Um, we put our spin on it, and we covered a wide variety of material. And then another one is some more original material, like that you see laying on my work table here, that Alvino Bennett, who is a drummer that works, lives down in Hollywood and works for Dave Mason. Now, he's not working for Dave so much now, but he's a writer and a player, writer, producer like myself. And we wrote some stuff about 10 years ago that um, he has um, resurrected... And we've started doing the um repairs on the tracks because it's all cutting pro tools and um so they're in pretty good shape. You need a verse here and there, and some of the backgrounds need a little repair here and there, but they're all workable pieces of music, and it's about a dozen pieces of music nice. so i I got that, and then I got some some of my own that um i've I've been working on here. And uh, and like I said, that that particular band, Miss Sydney and Downtown Saints, has been a lot of fun.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, it,
1: it's a live band, and it, it it's fun.
0: So, um, can listeners find you somewhere online? Oh yeah. Okay, where do yeah, they find you? And
1: they they could find me with Miss Sydney, and there's a website up there. Okay, I can't tell you what it is right now, but let me see.
0: Miss Sydney and the Downtown Saints. Yeah. Okay.
1: And, and that. Uh,
0: so they could probably Google that. And, and, and that
1: was that gig we did down there. Right. At the Edmund Center for the Arts, and. Um,
0: and then this this tune that you played for us at the beginning. Um,
1: that was an original piece of mine.
0: So that that tune is that going to make its way into the uh, musical universe of um, downloads on iTunes well, or anything uh, like that pretty soon? I,
1: that that's my goal. Yeah. Um, um, that's my goal. Cause I have that one. And as you can see, I've got quite a few more of those. And then I have some that I'm, I haven't finished yet that I'm, I'm still working on. Um, I just keep going, Brian, just keep going. <laughs> it's a one piece. Just, I keep going. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, um, did we cover everything that you <laughs> wanted to cover in this? Or?
1: <laughs> well, I, you're 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 very sneaky, Brian. You you just kind of you just bob and weave. You know how to dance, man. <laughs> you you know how to you know how to dance. You you remind me of Sammy Davis Junior. The first time I, I met Sammy Davis Junior., who was in, in Tahoe uh-huh. up there, and um, I I I'd never and Mister Boljangle's as corny as as one may think that is, you'd have to see Sammy Davis Junior. do that song. Mm. On stage with a spotlight over his head and a, and a hat and whistle and sing and dance. It was the most amazing thing I'd seen.
0: Well, I take that as a high compliment. If I remind <laughs> you.
1: If I remind you. Of you're a dancer. You. Oh, yeah, yeah. you are. You're a bob and a weaver. You're good.
0: Well, yeah. it was a real pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks, Thank, Brian. Thanks, thanks for, a lot.
0: Thanks for sharing your story. And um, we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Take right. care. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the dream path podcast. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to your favorite podcast service and give me a rating and review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. I appreciate your time. And as always, go find your dream path.